Welcome to the Region Biome Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Team Felix Turcotte, a certified integrative health practitioner, level one and two, certified in blood chemistry and functional lab testing. I love helping people with GI issues, weight loss, mold exposure, heavy metals, misters problems, and health optimization. I love helping people get to the root cause of their health struggles and simplify healing. Ready to transform your health? Go to regionbiome.com and click book a call. All the support is greatly appreciated. If you enjoy, please write a five-star review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. Enjoy the podcast and please share this with anyone that this would help. Welcome to episode 14 of the Regen Biome Podcast. Today, I am having a conversation with Dr. Christy Sutton from Dallas, Texas, who is a doctor of chiropractic medicine, author of the book, Genetic Testing, Defining Your Path to a Personalized Health Plan. So she was drawn to the healthcare field after being diagnosed herself with Crohn's disease at age 16. So her interest lies in helping her patients prevent health problems and helping them become as healthy and pain-free as possible and getting to the root cause of their problems. So she currently lives and practice in Dallas, Texas with her loving husband and daughter. So we will be talking about her new course, The Iron Curse, how many people are quietly being impacted by iron overload without knowing its long-term effects and what can we do about it. So we are also going to talk about the impact of chronic anemia, the myths around hemochromatosis, iron overload, and much more. So again, as a reminder, guys, before we get started, any of the information shared in this podcast should not be taken as medical advice and is for learning purposes only. Always refer to your medical doctor before making any changes to your diet or supplement regimen. Let's dive in. Well, hello. Welcome, Dr. Christy. How are you? Good. Great. Thanks for having me. Yes. I'm super excited about this episode. So I think we're going to we're going to have a great conversation around topics around anemia and excess iron overload, hemochromatosis, genetics, and some really specific genetics that are really, really important. I think there's a, a huge uh, misunderstanding around the whole anemia and iron overload. And uh, so, and I came across your work through searching through gen- genetics as well. So um, the great book, you know, you're, you have an incredible book. So I think you did amazing with this book. So uh, yeah, genetic testing, defining your path to a personalized health plan. So that was amazing, amazing tool. Uh, so I then I dove in into a little bit more of your uh, of your work. So recently been in your uh, workshop or your course that you just did around Iron Curse. And I was, uh, I automatically jump on it because myself, you know, like you know now with myself, I have hemochromatosis and we share some similarity and commonality with your husband as well that has hemochromatosis as well too um and how there's so much myths around that um uh, so yeah so i'd love to you know get 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 started and uh, maybe you can can share a little bit of your story you have a beautiful story around like with your husband as well as yourself uh so if you'd like to yeah, share with the listeners absolutely. that'd be amazing so so um okay so I am a chiropractor in Dallas, and 10 years ago, if you told me, like, you're going to write a book on genetic testing and create a course on how high iron and anemias can be a problem and all of that, I would and create a genetic report, I would have just been like, you have the wrong girl and you should go somewhere else. But um, I, you know, married a man who had and has the hemochromatosis gene which caused him to have high iron and I'm, I'm kind of a just get to the 
answer of why type of person. I'm always like, why is that happening? And also with my own personal history, I, you know, the reason that I'm in the healthcare field is because of my history with Crohn's and celiac. And it was a chiropractor that helped me answer, you know, why is this happening and how to really get this fixed as naturally as possible and get the underlying problem fixed. And so that's, that's really always been my kind of my mission because that is, I think what really helped me. And I feel like if, you know, my parents had had that mentality, maybe I wouldn't have had so many health problems. Maybe I never would have had Crohn's. Maybe I never would have had, you know, the celiac gene turn on to become actual celiac disease. You know, we'll never know. But um, so my, my passion and my mission is in finding why. And so when I married, I married my husband and, you know, I saw there was an issue with his labs that he was bringing home from his medical doctor. And it was very clear to me that like you have high iron, you have high ferritin. He had high liver enzymes, slightly high liver enzymes. Uh, If I remember correctly, it was high hemoglobin and maybe high hematocrit. And I remember being like, you need to donate blood. You, You have high iron and it's causing liver problems. Of course, you know, I'm very young as far as like in my career, I don't have a lot of confidence yet, like a lot of knowledge, but not a lot of confidence yet. And so, and I still, you know, feel like, well, if his doctor is not saying anything about it, then, you know, we need to do something about it, but surely they would say something if it was a big problem. So, and he felt the same way too. Um, So then he would periodically donate blood, but it's like his health, his health wasn't really getting better basically. Um, and his doctor wasn't saying anything. This went on for many years. And then finally it kind of came to a head where, um, I just started being like, we're going to order more labs on you. We're going to figure this out. I simultaneously started writing my first book, genetic testing book. Okay. So when I was writing that book, I realized my husband has this gene, this mm-hmm. hemochromatosis gene. This is why he has high iron. And like, we need to get this fixed. And so and his liver enzymes are going up. His primary care doctor is still not saying anything. So we get into a gastroenterologist. The gastroenterologist is like, I tell him the whole story about the genes and give him the labs I'd been running. And they, you know, they listen and then they don't really, I think, they don't think that's the problem. Mm-hmm. So they do their workup and he gets misdiagnosed as having another issue. We waste a bunch of time. And then ultimately, like, because I'm ordering more labs to realize that that was a misdiagnosis, we're able to get out of that misdiagnosis rabbit hole and go to get referred to the hematologist, which is where we really needed to be in the first place. But um, I didn't know enough of the time to say you need to go there. Honestly, I, I was still figuring all this out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every everything I've learned has been definitely the hard way. <laughs> so uh, I'm trying <laughs> to help people not have the hard way. Um, so, anyways, we go to the hematologist, give them the labs, give them the gene. They're like, "Oh yeah, this is hereditary hemochromatosis." They get him started on the treatment. He gets better as far as that goes. There's like. One lab that's not getting better is DHEA. So then we go to the endocrinologist. 
and I'm going to cut the story short, but basically he has a pituitary tumor that's causing him to have high cortisol, um, which I believe, and I didn't realize this till I was writing the book about high iron, but I believe that that tumor was a result of the high iron. And the reason I believe that is because high iron is really, really bad for the pituitary gland, especially the anterior pituitary gland, which is where his tumor is located. So it's very common for people that have high iron to develop cancers related, really driven by that because high iron creates a lot of damage to the DNA and inflammation and DNA damage causes um, cancers. So um, I have no way of proving that this tumor is caused by high iron, but I don't think it's a coincidence. You know, his liver's better now, but after going through all of this with my husband, um, because I'm a chiropractor, you know, I, I can do labs on people. I obviously was interested in genetic testing and um, high iron also causes a lot of joint pain. So it becomes, you know, this, I, I develop a very good system for looking at genes and labs in my patients. And what I realize is that we have an epidemic of undiagnosed high iron. Um, I've, I've, I'll be honest with you. When I started practice, I thought my problems were the same problems everybody else had. I thought, you know, everybody's low in iron and they all have digestive issues like diarrhea. So in my practice, when people are like, I have digestive problems, I'm constipated. I, I was kind of like, wow, there's a lot of constipated people. I just figure people had diarrhea because that's what I had when I you know, was having Crohn's. And then the same thing with iron. I'm like, wow, not everybody has low iron. Some people have high iron. And and I think that's common in, in healthcare for people to think like everybody has your problem. But until you're really looking for them, then you realize what people's problems actually are. And the problem that we have right now in healthcare is that they're not looking at a full iron panel. They'll maybe order one or two or none, and they're not looking at the genes. And it's it's a tragedy because this is such an easy disease to screen for, diagnose, and treat. And if you don't, then problems start often at a very young age. My daughter's already having she, – she's already had a high ferritin come back. The only reason we got that blood work done is because I told her doctor to order it. They, I've told him that she has the gene. They don't care. I'm like, are you going to order the iron panel because she has that gene? So comes back high ferritin. Everything else is fine. But they don't even say anything to me. The only reason I know that is because I looked in the portal. And, of course, now I'm going to be responsible for fixing this. And if you've listened, which I know you took the iron curse course, you listened to the story of my colleague who I diagnosed as having hereditary hemochromatosis at age five and her tragic story of not being able to get the treatment that she needed. So, you know, the writing is on the wall. I know what that's going to look like. So, um, that's my introduction. I don't want to, you know, go on a rabbit hole like I can sometimes, Uh, but that's a little bit about me. (laughs) No, thank you so much for sharing. And I think there's so many things that you brought up to light and, and I think this is such a com- common thing that a lot of people experience, experience in the medical space right now in conventional medicine, which is really unfortunate because that's basically what happened with myself uh, being juggled up and about basically being dismissed completely around this thing, right? Because I had excess iron in the past when when I went on a I went on a vegetarian diet, then I went vegan, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like I feel tired, so I'm probably low on iron. 
not knowingly, uh, not knowing that I had this immunochromatosis gene, so which having the almost like a copy of the uh, of the C282Y genetics, which is the more what what would you say severe or <laughs> yeah, you know that's that's probably and, the worst option. It could yeah. get worse, but it rarely does. Rarely and, do people have three. And I came across uh, with another friend of mine. We came across some other. Um, research, which I'll be happy to share with you in regards to some of the people, even with the homozygous, but they also have a different genetics and a, a different kind. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but makes, even though you have the homozygous, it actually helps you have a more balanced ferritin. So it's kind of like interesting, but I'll be able to share that yeah, with you. Yeah. But with myself, it was interesting how like my levels were over like 237. And for most people and doctors, I think like what you explain as well and what we see normally is we'll see levels, they won't do anything until your levels are 400, 500, or even above to potentially screen you for hemochromatosis. But by that time, you already have liver damage. So permanent, like, you already is, have permanent damage. Yeah. So that that's a huge concern. So, um, but yeah, so, and then one thing that you also shared was your husband only has one copy of the mild form of hemochromatosis. So what was the... And the general answer, and maybe maybe break the myths around, you know, all the most people say, oh, it's and even myself, I'm running, starting to run genetics with clients, and I'm like, oh, you're good, like you're fine. It's like, you know, it's nothing like me, but and I'm like, wait a minute, right? So after, so maybe you can share and, and talk. Yeah. About okay. That. So there's one of the I think most damaging myths out there right now that I'm really trying to kind of end with the Iron Curse book and uh, webinar is this idea that you have to have two, you have to be homozygous or you have to have two, at least two of these hemochromatosis genes to have hereditary hemochromatosis. And that's not true. You, you can have one. Many people do develop hereditary hemochromatosis with one. You can develop non-hereditary hemochromatosis with zero hemochromatosis genes um, simply from just having the right environmental factors. In fact, today I diagnosed somebody with that and I thought for sure they were going to have the gene because we, you know, we did labs on him a couple months ago and he had full-on hemochromatosis. Um And then he's telling me this story about his mom and how his mom has all these problems. And then I get to see her genes and she has the gene. And I'm like, well, you have to have this gene. Turns out he doesn't have the gene. He had not, he has non-hereditary hemochromatosis because he's an alcoholic and he drinks too much alcohol and alcohol increases iron absorption. Um, It was also, you know, he's doing much better now, but it happens. You don't have to have the gene to have high iron. Having these genes increases your risk for having high iron because they increase iron absorption. And the more you inherit, the higher the risk. But this is this is not just a genetic disease. You know, this is an environmental disease. You can have these genes and not have high iron. You know, if you're bleeding a lot. I I've seen people with these genes and they need to take iron because maybe they're just heavy bleeders or menstrual cycle or um, vegans and vegetarians. You know, oftentimes I find that people that are vegans and vegetarians, um, 
and they feel better that way, they'll have this gene. Um, they often are also have problems with dairy, which is a reason that they feel better off of dairy. So um, there are so many environmental factors, and that's why we just have to look at the labs and the genes because it's not hard. Having said that, um, you know, there there's a lot of bad information out there, and it's coming from the highest authorities, and, you know, that's what we're up against right now. So Yes, my husband. I'll just I'll just give you a little story. This is I'll give you a couple stories. One one is I always whenever I diagnose somebody with an iron problem, I I always refer them out. That's within my scope of practice, you know, to diagnose it, and then ultimately I have to refer them out. But what's really disturbing to me is how often you know these people have these genes. They have the labs that say high iron. They go to the doctor and their their primary care doctor or whatever, and it's just totally dismissed. You're fine. Mm. This is not a problem. And that is so frustrating to me to be like, to know that this is a problem, to understand so deeply how this is a problem. And then these patients are just being completely misled because the medical professionals don't know what to do is frankly what I believe is the problem. And so my husband, you know, he has one HFE H63 gene. Now, a lot of people out there, many of them with lots of fancy degrees, medical degrees, would say you cannot develop hemochromatosis with that genotype. Um, And they're wrong. It's happening. It happens all the time. Most of the people that I diagnose with hereditary hemochromatosis have one gene. And the reason for that is because that is the most common genetic. Uh, if you look at all of the people with a hemochromatosis gene, one or more, it is much more common to have one than two. Now, the people that have two are more likely to have high iron statistically, but there's so many people out there with just one gene that the majority of people that I diagnose have just one gene. It is very common for people with one gene to develop. And, and I actually, I didn't even know that people thought you had to have two genes until I started researching for this book because (laughs) I did this all backwards. I did all of this backwards. I, I really was like, the only reason I wrote this book is because I identified a problem and I sent the people to the doctors and the doctors didn't do their job. And then, you know, I had to figure out what the next step was. And um, so when I started researching, I'm like, what is this? This two gene thing? This is everybody that I see has so many people that I see have one Mm -hmm. gene. What is that? And then I realized like, oh, this is a serious problem. And then it, it, and then I realized why my husband's brother, who's a medical doctor, um, when we told my husband, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, when when we told my husband's family, because when somebody has a hemochromatosis gene, like they need to tell everybody <laughs> in their family because it's a gene, and this is probably you know affecting multiple people as a, you know a gene that does. And so you know we told my husband's brother, who's a medical doctor, and his brother was like, I think his brother went and talked to some person that knew a lot and I uh, was like well no you're never going to have a problem because you don't have you can't have a problem with that genotype okay so then years later 
my husband's like, um, he wants, he wants to know, he has some questions about the labs and I'm like, Hmm, what's going on? Uh, so then my husband's brother develops liver problems from, he has a high ferritin, never gets diagnosed with hereditary hemochromatosis. To this day, if you ask him, he'll be like, no, I was never diagnosed with hereditary hemochromatosis, never diagnosed with hereditary hemochromatosis because like his labs didn't meet the standard, but he had liver damage and he had high ferritin and the liver damage went away when he had blood removed to lower the iron. So it's like, okay, you had hereditary hemochromatosis. Like, I'm sorry they couldn't figure that out for you, but it's just, there's, medical doctor talking to other medical doctor experts, totally they miss it. So, I mean, it's awful what's going on out there. It's tragic and yeah. it's so avoidable. And the biggest, 100%. yeah, the myth of the, 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 if somebody says you're a carrier, then they don't know what they're talking about. Because if you look up the definition of a carrier, in gen- in the genetic world that means that you carry the gene for something like you have one copy of it but you cannot have a health problem related to it because you don't have two for example i am a carrier for the pku gene i have one if i had two i would 100% have pku i have one so i 100% don't i'm cool it's okay um with hemochromatosis. What is, what is the P? P so PKU. Me, yeah, the PKU? Okay, so <laughs> like, this is a really is rare, this is actually a very rare gene. Like I'm the only person that I know that has this gene. I got it from my grandma, you know, very Irish. We're just weird people. Um, but <laughs> yeah, most people with the hemochromatosis gene have PK, have, sorry, have uh, Irish genotype too. And we can talk about that later if you want, why that is. But um, PKU is a disease where you don't, Basically, you can't metabolize the amino acid phenylalanine and you have to eat like it causes serious neurological damage and you have to eat a zero like low phenylalanine diet, which basically means like it's a life sentence to eating like the most restricted medical food out there. It's truly an awful genetic disease, much like cystic fibrosis. If you have, you know, two cystic fibrosis genes, you're going to have cystic fibrosis, you know, that type of thing. Like those are, those are truly genetic diseases where if you have that, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that I still couldn't maybe have some health problems from it. And, and I think in the world of genetics, like there's a lot that's going to be discovered about our myths about genetics. Like this, maybe this idea of being a carrier is not really right in general in genetics. Like maybe people that just have one have different health problems for things like me, PKU. I don't know what they might be. I mean, I know that I don't eat any aspartame because phenylalanine, aspartame turns into phenylalanine. And I have this concern that it's going to be a problem, which I know it's bad for your brain anyways, but that's a different story. Um, So, but but my my point is that with hemochromatosis, there's this genetic myth that you can have one of these hemochromatosis genes and you're fine. Like you're cool. It's okay. You just have one. You're never going to get hemochromatosis. And that's the carrier myth. And like, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm the only person out there that I know of that's like, this is a myth. We've got to end this myth and we've got to get it like from the top down. We have to really get the 
top organizations to change that wording because carriers should not be in the vocabulary for hemochromatosis. That that's it's completely inappropriate yeah. you, because so many people that have one of those genes develop hemochromatosis. They're not carriers. Exactly. And I think that's why the big the big concern with around with genetics because so many genetics companies are popping right and left. And the thing is when these when genetics is interpreted without a human being, with only yourself, I find there's some cautious thing. Uh, it's really important because like you, I have hemochromatosis. I do have the, the genetics for it, but guess what? I am modulating my epigenetics, my lifestyle, my environment, what I do on a day-to-day basis to make sure that it does not, you know, express itself and, and becomes a problem. And so I, I know there's some severe genetic um uh, pheno- uh, not phenotype, but uh, genotype that are absolutely, there's nothing you can really do about it. But you can I always guess. do something about but, it. Yeah, exactly. And, and not every, so, you know, hemochromatosis is diagnosed really off labs. So, you know, the gene, gen, genes tell you what your risk is, but the labs are what tell you if exactly. you have hemochromatosis. So there are some people with your genotype that they don't have hemochromatosis maybe because their diet you know nutrition lifestyle whatever so um most people with your genotype will develop high iron um and unfortunately most people that develop high iron they don't get diagnosed only about Mm. two out of ten get diagnosed and the people that do it takes about on average at least 10 years and three doctors so um it's unheard of there's all these myths like it's a, it's thought that kids don't get hemochromatosis if you a lot of people think oh it only causes a problem in oh your sixth decade and that's not true the problem is that kids are not getting the lab work to test it and just like teenagers and you know adults in general we're not ordering a full iron panel which is criminal because it's you know a 30 dollar oh, lab um it just doesn't make sense no and, and the thing like around the kids, and this is why like epigenetics and genetics makes, you know, uh, epigenetics is, is so important in tracking, you track your genetics through blood chemistry. And, that, and this is why I cannot stress that enough, but I always, that's what I always share with my clients, with my following, with people, because I'm like, if you're just doing your genetics, but you're not tracking it through blood chemistry, it's like with methylation, it's the same thing. I'm like, well, you have to track it. It's not, right. you know, Did- you have MTHFR, but. We all do have the genetics, but it's whether or not you have a variant, but how is that expressing in, like, are you testing homocysteine? Are you testing, like, a, a simple plain CBC panel with differentials? Like, all of this stuff matters big time. Right, yeah. And there's – I totally agree. I have in – my, in my practice, occasionally I'll have people that they come in and they're like, I just want you to read my genetics. And I'm like – I don't like read genetics like like astrology or something, okay? Like this is simply <laughs> telling you kind of where your genetic Achilles heel is and then ultimately what really – you can't just look at genetics and not look at the labs and the like mm. symptoms and the – not just the, the symptoms but the environmental factors like – if you're if you're just looking at the genetics without that lab piece, then you're lost at sea without a compass. And that's that's why I created the word labrogenomics because 
I wanted people to be comfortable with looking at both and mm-hmm. layering them and knowing I have this lab, I need to know about this gene, or I have this gene, I want to know about this lab. I mean, like just today, somebody's labs came back and she's got symptoms of high iron or signs of high iron in her labs, you know, 31 year old female. And I'm like, okay, you need to order genetic testing because I don't know what you're dealing with, but this is not normal and you need to figure it out now. So that's where you, we really need all of them, but that's not the, this is not where the medical system is ready to be yet. And this is going to have to be driven by the lay people. I believe, I believe in medicine and in healthcare, you know, Sometimes things are driven by what I would call a bottom-up approach, which is where the masses just kind of say, Mm -hmm. we're doing this. So an example of a bottom-up thing that I've seen within my life is, you know, the gluten issue where so many people are like, I have a problem with gluten and I'm going gluten-free and I feel better. And then they tell their doctor. And it's not top-down where like their doctor is saying, I think you have a problem with gluten and you need to go gluten-free. It's the opposite of that. This is a lay person bottom-up movement that we've seen in the last 20 years. And I, I'm a product of that. You know, I, I went gluten-free because I just read about it in a book. And, mm-hmm. and exactly, yeah. I had medical doctors tell me that was a mistake to go gluten-free, even though I felt better. <laughs> Um, so this is just an yeah. example of where I think we're going to have to go with the hemochromatosis movement, but it's going to be a lot harder because with hemochromatosis, you need the lab work done. So you do need at some yeah. level more medical input. It's much harder than just saying, I'm going to avoid gluten, but everybody can get their genes done without a doctor. In fact, the irony of it is that a many doctors don't have the ability to order the hemochromatosis genes. So for example, my dear neighbor who I love dearly, she's a wonderful physician's assistant. We talk about medical stuff all the time when we take walks and she's obviously aware about hemochromatosis because I taught her about it on one of our walks. And she was, she's like, I have a patient. I'm pretty sure he has this, but I don't know how to order this gene. I can't order it through my lab company. Like, and she's at a major medical establishment. And so she can't order it. And I'm like, well, there, you're going to have to get your patient to order that lab test through, you know, 23andMe or whatever. Um, just so that, and then they're going to have to give that information to you. And this is not how it should work. But this is this is what I'm talking about. This is going to have to be every single layperson can get their genes done, figure out if they have this gene. And then if they do, then they need to get the labs done. They've got to get the labs done. And that's, you know, we talked about that in the Iron Curse. But um, so yeah, does that make sense? And in fact, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think like obviously there's, there's a lot of questioning around like, because I've run my 23andMe way back and I know like with like 
data collection and resellment and reselling and all that. So, I mean, there's a, cause I obviously I use a functional genomic company that is much different. It's more through a coach like myself that you have to go through, which I, I like that approach as well too, but I, Hey, people have the, the freedom at the end of the day, you have the freedom to, there's a lot of tools out there. Yeah. So especially to know just for, to roll out the HFE genes for hemochromatosis. Yeah. Like, I mean, it told me on my my 23 and me labs, but I never actually did anything about it. I was like, okay. I'm right. Like, a lot of people, mean, right? so, a lot of people don't, and you don't have to use. So I had a clue. <laughs> like, there's other no. options out there, but I think it's important to be well-versed in that company because they are the most commonly used company out there. Mm-hmm. And so the nice thing about just being well-versed in that company for people who are interested in this is that um, often I'll have people come in and I'm, you know, have you done genetic testing? Have you done 23andMe? And they already have done it. And then we just have that information right then. So most people haven't done genetic testing through all of these other companies, not because they're not better. It's just Mm -hmm. right now kind of the most common one is 23andMe. Oh, it's the most common one. And, And, you know. So, and I don't, I, I, it's not perfect. And I certainly understand why people want to use other ones. My patients tend to often use like fake names just for the whole, um, yeah, exactly. privacy thing. But, um, the point yeah. of it is we've got to get more people tested and doctors should be doing this in their offices and they're not. And they, like I said, so some of them yeah. don't even have the ability to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And no, it's, it's, it's a real issue. And to touch back on two kids as well, one thing that we we are, I think we we truly are facing a huge problem is when food was uh, enriched. So the fact that like flowers and the the food that we eat. So, and I think you did talk about, uh, and I've heard that through other uh, avenues around the types of iron that is actually being pushed and put into foods uh, and refined foods and all of that as well, the uh, enriched flowers and all of that. So, and I know you spoke about that as to, uh, there's like two different types of metals of like the iron types that are being used and it's actually quite detrimental. Yes. So there's multiple different types of iron that are being added to processed foods. So years ago, they, basically this is what happened. Processed foods started to be more standard and normal and When you process foods, you basically take out the nutrients, which means that nutritional deficiencies became more common because they were were stripping the food of nutrients. And in order to combat that, rather than just, you know, saying these foods are junk and we should be eating whole foods, they said, let's add some nutrients back to these foods. And so then they add... You know, they add folate or folic acid and, they, you folic know, you acid, can just look, yeah. they'll add various vitamins, B12, folic acid, um, and then they'll add iron. Um, that's to fortify. So whenever something's fortified, that means they're, they're fortifying it, they're making it uh, better is what, you know, they're trying to say. They're not making it better. They're just stripping out all the really key nutrients and they're adding back a couple, you know, low quality, crappy, low quality nutrients. And yeah, yeah. Um, 
so like if they if they strip out folate which is the naturally occurring you know b9 then they'll add back folic acid which is synthetic and you know not as good so if they strip out you know naturally occurring iron then they'll add back you know a type of iron and they just put on their iron but they don't say what specific type of iron they're adding and so the problem is not just that they're you know adding these low quality nutrients but of the many different types of iron that they can and do add to foods we know that at least two of those forms are carcinogenic and increase the risk for colon cancers and we know that they're not telling us what form they're adding so even if we knew exactly what we were looking at avoiding we couldn't because they're not telling us what iron they're putting in there so there's really no benefit to even like memorizing the type of iron that's a problem because they're not saying what type they're putting in there but um you just have to assume that they're putting something bad in there and there is a risk um you know processed foods carry lots of risks but that is one of the risks is that you might be eating a processed food that's been fortified with a carcinogenic iron so um that's especially bad like, for people with high iron, but it's not particularly good for anybody. And kids in general, I mean, eating a tons of cereals, a ton of these products. So it's even more common to have excess iron with, with so many children nowadays. So, yeah, yeah. Um, with kids, I, what I see with kids is that, Kids don't tend to have high iron unless they have the hemochromatosis gene. And then with kids, it's very common to have iron deficient anemia. So Mm -hmm. and adults too, iron deficient anemia is very common and it's a serious issue. But with kids, Kids really don't tend to have high iron unless they have that hemochromatosis gene is what I see. With adults, you see more adults with high iron that don't have the hemochromatosis gene. Statistically, the people with the hemochromatosis gene are going to be more likely to have high iron. But there's lots of adults out there that have high iron and they don't have the gene. They've just had more time to accumulate it. You know, they're doing more things that really, you know, are causing them to have high iron. Whereas kids, if they don't have that gene, but if they have the gene, there's a serious risk there and they're not getting diagnosed, period. So, um, but if, yeah, if you want to talk about iron deficient anemia, you know, I'm more than happy to talk about that because I personally deal with that. So, um, yeah. So, because it's, I know, Oh, so sorry, because <laughs> I know like there's there's different types of anemia, and then there's uh, chronic disease of anemia. So it could cause because the thing pathogens loves loves iron, right? So I've quickly spoken about that in the past, but yeah, let me you know tell yeah. tell us yeah. about like your your story around that. Okay, so yeah, there's multiple types of anemias, and you know we talked about this in the Iron Curse webinar, and I'm gonna I have a whole section in my book on iron def- on on anemias in my upcoming Iron Curse book, but basically, you know, the most common type of anemia is iron deficient anemia, which there's lots of different causes for that. So there's multiple types of anemia. There's iron deficient anemia, there's copper deficient anemia, and copper deficient anemia 
creates iron deficient anemia because you need copper to absorb iron. Um, there's, and also to be able to transport iron in and out of the cell, mm-hmm. there's aplastic anemia, uh, which is where you get like not enough red blood cells because your bone marrow is not creating enough. Um, there's hemolytic anemia where your red blood cells are breaking and basically they're break, they're not lasting long enough. They're breaking and that's creating low red blood cells, but high iron, um, there's, uh, anemia of inflammation, which is often called anemia of chronic disease. disease and yeah. that is, um, like what you were saying. So whenever you have an infection, the immune system likes to get iron out of the blood and the immune system knows that infect like parasites and bacteria and they, they need iron for their survival so they can thrive. They're, one of the things they're getting from us is iron. And so the immune system knows that if there's a lot of iron, you're going to be more likely to not be able to get over this infection, which is why people that have high iron tend to have more infections. So the immune system knows that mm-hmm. if, if somebody has an infection, it's going to get the iron out of the blood And it sequesters the iron in the liver and in the macrophages, part of the immune system. So you'll see like accumulations in the spleen, especially in people that don't have the hemochromatosis gene. Um, And then in the intestinal lining. And so basically this is decreasing the absorption of iron, but it's also decreasing the amount of iron that's in the blood whenever you have an infection. Now, if, the, if you have a chronic type issue, then you'll see it'll be like it'll create a long term low iron issue because you're not absorbing enough iron. And that is on labs that looks like uh, a high ferritin because you're storing lots of iron um, as ferritin. And ferritin is also an inflammatory blood marker because there's lots of inflammation. Yeah. But it's not just acute. It can be chronic too. If you have chronically high inflammation, um, Mm. it signifies there's inflammation. Um, and, and then you'll often get like a low serum iron or, you know, a low iron saturation or like a high TIBC or a high UIBC, that type of stuff. So that's anemia of inflammation, which is pretty common. And then the other, but iron deficient anemia is, you know, the, the mother load. Um, some people out there say copper deficient anemia is the mother load. I would wager that it's iron deficient anemia, although I'm not trying to undermine copper deficient anemia. I know that that is an issue out there that does need to be seriously looked at. Having said that, because females particularly tend to be at a higher risk for iron deficient anemia. The reason that they tend to be a higher risk for iron deficient anemia is because they menstruate. And there's a lot of women out there that have very heavy menstrual cycles and they are bleeding. And they're the, the main thing that you lose when you bleed, you might lose a little bit of copper, but you lose a lot of iron. That's why when somebody has high iron, one of the treatments is donating blood. I talk about many other treatments in the Iron Curse, and they're wonderful and great too. 
you know, diet supplements, all that. Having said that, there is no doubt that the primary thing you lose when you're bleeding is iron. And so Mm -hmm. women tend to have issues with iron deficient anemia for that reason. So common. Kids often have issues with iron deficient anemia too for different reasons. Um, And their reasons are largely because they're on a high calcium diet. Calcium binds to iron. They're growing very quickly, which uses a lot of iron. Maybe they're picky eaters. They're not getting enough iron. Um, those Those are the big reasons for the kids. But it's very common for kids to be low in iron and they're not diagnosed properly either. Um, men can be low in iron too, just because they're not getting enough in their diet and, or, uh, maybe they have a, a bowel problem. For example, I tend to have low iron if I'm not really careful because I have Crohn's, you know, celiac. I don't eat gluten. I try really hard to keep my gut healthy, but when I was 16 and they diagnosed me, they took a foot of my small intestine out. And so, you know, I'm kind of playing with, a you know, not a full deck of cards here. And I don't mean like mentally, my brain's good. It's just my gut's not great. Um, so I don't have as much intestines to absorb iron. Um, I'm also menstruating female. And then the other reason that females tend to get really low in iron is pregnancy. Pregnancy is a black hole for iron. If you, you know, you can have hemochromatosis and the treatment would be to get pregnant because you're going to (laughs) deplete that iron. But it's hard to get pregnant if you have hemochromatosis because hemochromatosis causes infertility, which is tragic. And I'm dealing with somebody, you know, that was my patient today. They're crying about infertility. And I'm like, well, the problem is that you had undiagnosed hemochromatosis for a long time, but I'm not telling I'm, you know, we're just trying to get them as healthy as possible. But yeah, high iron will cause infertility. It'll cause heart problems. It'll cause joint pain. It'll cause liver problems. That's a big one. That's probably the most well-known, but it makes no. sense because iron's stored in the liver. It'll destroy your brain. Um, you know, through the iron curse, I kind of, I have this whole lecture on just all the problems that iron causes. And it's a lot, it's a long, deep list. Mitochondrial issues, you know, That's you true. name a problem, I can tell you how, how high iron causes it. Literally, you name a problem, high iron can cause it. I'll tell you how. Yeah. And that, that's, that's so common. And I think like, and I think there's a, a sweet spot because I actually, I had a, a long time, I had my copper levels conventionally was extremely low when we tested it because I requested my doctor to do it and she finally did. It. And I was in the red conventionally. So I'm like, Hey, this is a problem. And I think for myself, it's always been a funny journey of like how more predisposed you are to towards infections, but it's funny anyways, maybe we can talk about that well, it's later. it's common for people my... with high iron to have low copper because, yeah. um, and, and just the serum copper is not the most wonderfully accurate test out there, although mm-hmm. it's worth ordering. Yeah, seroplasmin as well. And seroplasm, and then maybe even like a hair analysis just to see what's going on in the hair. Yeah. But, you know, high iron does inhibit absorption of copper so and if you're low in copper then like i said it's hard to get iron to move in and out of the cell it just gets stuck in the cell so you get this iron loading in the tissue which is really bad 
Yeah, and, and also the, I think one thing too that has been really working as well thing myself is making sure I have proper zinc too. <laughs> so I think too yeah. is, uh, and yeah. high iron will cause low zinc mm-hmm. also, and then low zinc will cause more iron related problems. So yeah, and certainly, and like that's so many yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, the minerals Maybe are you know there's really a symbiotic relationship there, and when you yeah. start getting high in iron, you often like start getting low in a lot of the other ones. And so that's why, you know, you have to look at those different possibilities. Yeah. And, and there's one thing that you spoke about, and it's so common in the, in the functional medicine or naturopathic world now is a lot of people that because you got the diagnosis of you are anemic. So because your ferritin is low, let's just go get a iron shot. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, and you spoke about that as this should be like the last resource um, oh, you mean like an iron you know, infusion? Uh, infusion, yeah, uh, yeah. Iron infusion, yeah. yeah. So uh, maybe you can talk about yeah. why, well, you know, there's yeah. other steps before that. Yeah, I, I, you know, why is always my question. Okay, you have low iron. Why? You have high iron. Why? You know, if, if nobody's asking that question, then, you know, that's that's an unfortunate thing. So with iron infusions, you know, people that are, because you can die from low iron. Um, you know, you need iron. Too much, too little, there's this Goldilocks part. And most people are either too low or too high. Um, but there's a lot of people that get iron infusions because they're dangerously low in iron. Um, you you know, only a medical doctor will be able to give an iron infusion. That's a pretty serious once you need an iron infusion, like you're dangerously low. So this is a common treatment that people that have like pregnant women often get iron infusions because they're so low in iron from being pregnant and their doctor just didn't get a handle on the iron deficient anemia properly. I see that a lot. Um, Not with my patients. My patients don't have that problem because I don't let them have that problem, but that's a very common thing to happen in the OBGYN world. Um, often also like non-pregnant patients will need iron infusions if maybe they just had surgery and they lost a lot of blood and, or they, uh, maybe they have like a GI bleed. You see that a lot. And so there's always a reason and you've got to find the underlying reason and fix it. Like if somebody has a GI bleed, then obviously you need to fix the GI bleed heal up the gut and then find why did you have a GI bleed? Is it because you've been taking a high dose of, you know, aspirin for the mm. last decade? Um, so there's always a question of why. Um, but iron, the, what, I, what I talked about in the iron curse is about how iron infusions are, you know, while people can die from low iron, and if your doctor says you need an iron infusion, then you you probably really need more iron. That's dangerous. Having said that, iron infusions give you um, a lot of oxidative stress. They create a lot of oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is like if you cut an apple and you just let it sit out, it's going to turn brown. Um, and, and that's the oxidative stress. That's the oxygen in the room is reacting with the apple and it's causing damage to the apple, which is why you can see it turn brown. Um, oxidative stress is also also what causes rust. So, you know, if you imagine something rusting and becoming rusty, that's what's happening inside the bodies of people that have high iron. They're 
resting on a cellular level from the inside, very deepest inside their body. And um, so oxidative stress is caused by high iron. Oxidative stress is also caused by iron infusions. The reason for that Even in people that have low iron, they are going to have a lot of oxidative stress from that iron infusion because that iron is not bound to transferrin. When you, the body's designed to keep iron sequestered by transferrin, like iron is supposed to be bound to transferrin to travel throughout the blood. And the reason for that is because the body is really smart and it knows that if it doesn't bind transfer into iron, that iron's going to go cause damage somewhere because it's just unbound and it's just going to go react to something. And it's just going to kind of go react wherever wherever it wants to go. Now, the body's not going to let that happen. And so when you eat iron and you absorb it in your intestines, it gets attached to a transferrin. And the transferrin is like the chaperone. It's the chaperone that says, okay, we're going to go here and you can go here and I'll drop you off there. It's like the chauffeur. It's like, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to make sure you get to where you need to go and you can go there, but, you know, only because I took you there. Now, with an iron infusion, the iron goes directly into your blood and it bypasses the digestive tract which means that it has bypassed the transferrin chauffeur chaperone. And what that looks like is that looks like a lot of iron just getting out there in the blood, going wherever it wants to, reacting, causing oxidative stress, causing rust and damage throughout your body. Now, I'm always trying to figure out not just why something's happening, But first, do no harm. And if you are going to apply a treatment or a therapy that does harm, because, you know, if somebody needs an iron infusion, then what can you do to protect them so that they're not getting all that oxidative stress? And so what I talk about in the iron curse is, one, let's try to avoid iron infusions if possible. But if you need one, what are some things you could consider talking to your doctor about doing to decrease the risk of oxidative stress damage. And that would look like lots of antioxidants. So like lots of glutathione. Ideally, if somebody's getting iron infusion, I would love for their doctor also to give them a glutathione infusion and a vitamin C infusion, you know, and, Mm. and then orally, of course, doctors aren't going to do that. Maybe they will. If they do, great. If they don't, then you can take, you know, a lot of antioxidants orally, not just through supplements, but through diet too. Lots of fruits and vegetables, but certainly there's always, you know, ways to make things better and, but a lot of people don't understand the risks of iron infusion or just high iron. Um, and so they don't really, and they don't understand how to kind of modulate them. And that's what I'm trying to kind of yeah. get people to understand. Not Don't just diagnose this, but what do you do to protect yourself and your family? Exactly. <clears throat> and that's the thing. I, I mean, joints and things like I, for me, my joints was, I think, something that a little bit, it's not so bad. Like I've been actually doing much better. I, I went to do a blood phlebotomy um, last week, actually. So that was really, really good. Or the week before. Um, Did so you feel better afterwards? Of... Yes. So, and this yes. is the funny thing because um, there's a lot of research and studies around um, 
so what I experienced, so I've been, uh, myself, I've been the whole experiment the whole time, but it was so funny how I was not, I did not donate blood for a period of uh, six or eight months, almost, I think eight months, but in that period of time, um, so I actually started taking lactoferrin, which is a great iron chelator per se, they say, according to some of the research, but also as a great iron absorbent as well to our, especially in pregnant women that are uh, deficient, uh, like uh, anemic. So there's a great, great, great studies on those, but I guess it works for some people and I guess it might not. So I guess it did not work well for myself because my, my iron saturation went back to eight, went from 61 to 89%, but my ferritin went from 122 or 125 to 131, which actually I was quite surprised. But uh, yeah, it's just my saturation just went up. And I always get a still like a bit confused around the saturation as is that the, the, the amount of saturation of iron in the blood currently. So that's why I always been it because I love to test transferrin with clients. It's transferrin to iron. IBC, UIBC, ferritin, mm-hmm. um, obviously like copper and all these ones. But yeah, the saturation, it was, it was quite interesting for me. So, yeah. So, you know, lactoferrin, I, I don't have a lot of personal like clinical experience with that. That's not really the route that like I've mm-hmm. kind of experimented with. Um, but my understanding is that it can be a chelator of other minerals too, which might be part of getting you know, if you were using that as a treatment for iron, that might be part of why you kind of got low on some other minerals too, mm-hmm. um, Potentially, yeah. which can be a problem. Um, but, you know, sometimes the the iron labs, they'll jump around and it won't always make 100% clinical sense. And that's where you kind of have to like familiarize yourself with looking at a lot of them to kind of... Uh, there's almost, there's like an art to it. And part of that is, oh, yeah. and that's where, that's where it's kind of like, you know, you need to kind of like know the rules before you feel comfortable breaking the rules. Like you need to like know the ranges and like know the technical diagnosis, but at some point in time, you're going to be breaking those rules because not everybody goes by the rule book. For some people, they will tend to have a pretty good ferritin but they still have a lot of iron problems, like really high iron saturation, um, really low TIBC, low UIBC, uh, symptoms of iron damage, liver enzymes high, you know, things like that. So not everybody. And then other people like the ferritin is just going to go through the roof before their iron saturation comes up. So not everybody's going to react the same. And the, but the generally you need to get that ferritin down in a healthy range and the iron saturation down in a healthy range. And the process of getting there is not always exactly clear. Sometimes, you know, one will drop and then the other, and that's where you can get some iron avidity where like, if you're donating, if you're getting a lot of blood out quickly, then basically your iron saturation can go high and your ferritin can go low. And that's just like your body is kind of saying, oh my gosh, we are now in an iron deficit situation and your bone marrow starts pumping out um, more iron to make more red blood cells basically because your body's like, we're we're bleeding, we're dying, we're dying. Um, And so 
but but it's not dying. It's just you know that that treatment of lowering iron to, to too quickly yeah. is like a shock to the system. Um, I personally think that if you you know use the information taught in the Iron Curse protocols and like use the nutritional uh, supplements mm-hmm. I discussed, you can really avoid a lot of those situations. Absolutely. But it's an art. Everybody's different, and things are going to jump around. The key is to get things into a healthy range and keep them there and to get, you know, all of the other surrounding labs to look really good. So like iron can cause blood sugar problems. So making sure the blood Mm. sugar is good. It can cause liver problems. Make sure the liver is good. Cause inflammation. Make sure the inflammation markers are good. You know, how does somebody feel? Are their symptoms better? Is their joint pain gone? Um, You have to look at the whole picture. You know, we can't just summarize it down to a couple labs, but certainly we need to look at those too. Absolutely. And there was something that was so fascinating to me because I was actually watching a, um, What's it called? It's called Outlander on on Netflix, and it was back in the night. I know, so it was so good because I was just like, "Oh my god!" The old, I had this whole epiphany of iron, like anemia and like hemochromatosis when you talked about this, because I was like, "Oh my god!" So it was back in the show in the nineteen sixties or seventies when there was the the huge the huge war. So basically, people in that time, and I was like kind of referring referencing back i was like well people weren't eating like steaks and like major amounts of red meat that now we have access to and they were eating more more bread and more things as such i was like this is so interesting and then you talked about this in the courts because how emokomatosis before was actually you were lucky if you had this genetic because it was actually serving you benefit it was actually allowing you not to die so maybe you could talk about that oh i'd love to talk about that i just think that's so much fun i just think that's so i'm so glad we're talking about this okay so (laughs) there's genes like you study genes you're familiar with the concept the warrior gene right yeah yeah okay so like Typical warrior I'm like the, genes. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the comp. The, I'm the opposite. I'm like the, the, the scared one. Yeah, yeah. You're, the worried one. You're worried. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. like the typical warrior genes are like the comp or the MAO, and all has to do with like basically stress, adrenaline, all that. Um, I think we should call the hemochromatosis genes the warrior genes because. Like, these are legit warrior genes. Like, what do you need to be a warrior? You need to be able to get injured and not die from blood loss. You need to be able to go through a famine where you're not going to be getting enough iron and survive. You've got to be tough stuff. So these genes, like, there's if there's a gene that's very prolific in the population, which the hemochromatosis genes are very prolific in the population, there's a reason for it. They they have served an evolutionary function that has allowed people to not just survive, but thrive. And through evolutionary bottlenecks. And so the history of the hemochromatosis gene, it's really fascinating. It basically came from, you know, a Celtic Viking ancestor. Well, what are those folks? Those are some tough warriors. Like they could go on ships for a long period of time. They were, you know, fought. They went all over the world and raped and pillaged. Like those were tough people. And they 
reason that there's so many Northern European people that have hemochromatosis, especially, you know, the very Northern Irish, UK, um, is because the Viking Celtic, they were all over that area. That was their, that was, they were hugely influential in that area. And they really had a lot of kids in that area. And then their kids had kids. And, but so in the, through the history of, you know, the eons, iron is essential for survival. You absolutely need iron for survival. Almost every single organism on earth needs Mm -hmm. iron with the exception of like a few bacteria. So what are things that, you know, iron helps you survive with? It helps you survive pregnancy. Pregnancy is a evolutionary bottleneck. It helps you survive being a child. You know, these genes, they help children to survive periods of famine. And like, there's all these kids with low iron out there. They would they could die in a non-iron rich world where McDonald's is not, you know, at every corner where literally it's like, we just don't have food. We're not eating today. I'm sorry. You know, it's, there's no food. Um, Famines, injuries, iron is key for, I'm sorry, iron is key for all of these things. And so this gene, it, it was a blessing, you know, the book and the webinar webinar, they're called the iron curse. Well, It's also, you know, the Celtic curse is thought, you know, the hemochromatosis gene has been called the Celtic curse. It's been called the Irish curse because so many people in Ireland have this gene. I just changed it to the iron curse because I have seen so many people with in a totally different genetic populations that have this gene and have this problem. And that's probably because I'm an American and in America, we have so many people from different parts of the world, you know? So I have, you know, like our front desk girl, she's from Honduras and she has the gene and she's not, you know, she's Hispanic. Um, but she got it from her father who has lots of health problems. You know, I've seen people from the Mediterranean, you know, um, various areas with this gene. So it's, not just a Northern European genetic issue anymore. And we also need to get that out of our head. Having said that, it is, it is mostly in the Northern European, especially particularly the worst in Ireland. And the reason for that is because of the Irish potato famine. So this Mm. gene was already very common there because, um, the Celtic Irish people brought it down, but also because in Ireland, you know, green tea is very popular is my understanding. I've never been there. I'd love to go someday. They drink a lot of tea. Tea makes you low in iron. Um, you know, I guess they lived in a low iron diet for a long period of time, but basically what happened is during the Irish potato famine, they ended up, um, going through this period of time with no food. And the people that had this gene were more likely to survive just because, like I said, you can die from low iron. And so the people that had this gene could survive because they had the nutrients they needed to just get through the famine. And then, so what happened was there was this explosion of hemochromatosis afterwards because, you know, a lot of the people without the gene died and a lot of people with the gene survived. And then they got together and they had, you know, what were heterozygotes become homozygotes. And so it's like the highest (laughs) population in the world world. It's a huge problem. Even there, they're not diagnosing it like they should. It's, it's, um, but that's the story. And so what used to be, you know, 
a, a protective shield is now, you know, a curse, but it's, it's, it's all about our environment. You know, this is a, this is an environmental disease. Now we live in a world where we're adding iron to processed foods and, you know, red meat is at every corner and we get iron in supplements and, you know, we don't go through real famines. I know a lot of people like to do like intermittent fasting. That's not the same as saying straight up, I'm not going to be eating for the next week or two, you know, that's much different. So, um, yeah, it's fascinating. I know. I was like, oh my gosh, like, and red, redheads in general, like, are like from Irish, I I have more risk. Like that's what you were saying as well. So, yeah. And in in that show, I was like, oh my God, like this guy is like, probably he's got even, just, just this whole thought. It was amazing. It was fascinating. Now, like I just look at people. It, it becomes hard sometimes. I'm, My husband's like, will you just stop? Will you just stop diagnosing everybody? Like, that person I, has hemochromatosis. Yeah, just, I look, I'm like, have you thought about getting your iron levels checked? <laughs> That's what I want to say. Know. But I don't. <laughs> I know. It's just, and I think like, it was funny because I think the one thing that I really appreciated with like the 22 and me is because I know I'm Northern European, French, German mostly, but I have some Irish and Scottish. So, and mm-hmm. North European, like it's really strong. So yeah. my family was actually from New Brunswick and then went to Quebec. So a lot of my French peers, yeah, you should get your genetics checked because Everybody I can should. tell you everybody. So my dad, it's so funny because now I have, oh, I just love so myself, I'm almost I guess for the the C282Y. My mother has one copy of the H63D and one copy of the C282Y. My brother has only one copy of the of the C282Y. So I'm just like, how did this happen? Because I'm like, clearly I got two from I got one from my dad. So what is your father? I have no idea. Yeah. But is hair in my dad's family, the hair, one thing that I've been able to do. Yo, and, I can tell you the, what your father was. Your father was a heterozygote for C282Y at least because your brother only got one. Um, and well, I guess your your father could be a homozygote, but he was probably a heterozygote because your mom has one. So your mom probably gave your brother the, the good Probably gave your brother, I would guess, probably her, the good copy. I don't know. You don't, okay. th- that's yeah, you're never really going to know without really knowing. But yeah, what would be interesting exactly. is if you can get some of like his siblings genotypes and then you can kind of figure that mm-hmm. out. Like, because I have like osteoporosis in the family. High iron uh, can cause that. Of, yeah. And a lot of hair graying, which high that was the case with myself that. with, with oxidation. So I've been actually been reversing my hair graying. I barely mm-hmm. have any gray hair now. I think I have a couple now. It's only in my beard. But in the past couple months, the one thing that I've been able to do was actually reverse my hair graying. That was a lot more. Yeah. And yeah, that's because you don't have this much oxidative and, stress. Yeah. yeah. It was amazing. It was fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Well, because you don't have as much oxidative stress as you don't have as much hydrogen peroxide going around, you know, graying mm-hmm. your hair. And now you're... Alcohol. What? Alcohol. You're not, alcohol. Drink, you're not drinking as much alcohol, I guess, is what you're saying. Alcohol uh, will do it too. I don't drink at all. So. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So so bad, especially if you have iron issues. But certainly the um, the... The fact that you don't have as much gray hair is also 
that brings to the point, you know, high iron also increases aging and can dramatically take time off of your life. You know, a high ferritin can take like 20 years off your life. This is huge. Mm. Why are we not looking at this closer? Um, And so you have slowed down aging and, you know, given yourself a longer, not just a better life, but a longer life. Absolutely. No, I, I'm really happy with that. And it's been great. So, and I'm glad I came, uh, uh, you know, aware of what was happening with myself and going to blood chemistry. Cause it's, I mean, if you don't run blood work, I'm like, you're missing out. Most people do blood work once a year, if, if you're lucky and most people won't even get a full iron panel. Like often I'll see yeah. years and years. My brother hasn't had a blood work in over 12 years. Yeah. And years, he probably has high iron too. <laughs> Yeah, it's it, and it's sad because this is something like I said that is so easy to treat and diagnose and avoid and screen for, and we're just totally missing it. Which, um, in my mind, I'm like, if we can't get a handle on this, like, how are we going to get a handle on any of the more complicated? Like, how are we ever going to really get a handle on like? cancers and more serious things that are, you know, harder to diagnose and treat and screen for, if we can't get a handle on this, because with this, it's not a lack of knowledge or information or, Mm -hmm. you know, powerful tools. This is just straight up. I I think it's malpractice. I think it's med. I think there's a lot of medical malpractice out there and it, it's really coming from the top down. Like I think doctors are just not really aware of what's going on and their patients are suffering from it, from that lack Absolutely. of awareness and knowledge. And I want to be respectful of your time. I'm not sure how much more time you have, but I just, I, like, <laughs> I should probably really get off you. pretty soon. Cause I got to go pick my daughter up at school in a minute, but this has been fun. We should do it again. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And maybe last, I, cause I know there's a huge issue with the iron and like oxidized LDL. And this is why screening that and like hypertension and, and you talk, well, we talk a lot about, you know, blood glucose dysregulation, diabetes and all of that stuff. So how the excess iron is a huge problem. So. Yes. In regards to that. Yes. Especially and- the LDL. I'm like, nitric, I'm a huge fan of nitric oxide and I'm a big fan of nitrates, nitrate supplement. Like, um, yeah, but, but you have but to, yeah. be, you have to be careful with that because if you have high iron and you take nitric oxide and you boost nitric oxide, you can actually create more peroxynitrates, which can create cardiovascular damage and problems. So um, like in the, in this webinar, I talked about how it, the nitric stuff is really at the bottom. The nitric oxide boosters are at the bottom of the protocols because the first step is get the iron down and get the antioxidants up. And if you, if you have high iron, then you're going to have lower levels of nitric oxide because it causes endothelial dysfunction and you get lower levels of nitric oxide. If you have high iron, you also deplete antioxidants and low antioxidants um, cause low nitric oxide. So the first step is, you know, get the iron lower and get the antioxidants higher. And by doing those, your nitric oxide will naturally increase. If it doesn't increase to the level that you know it should and could be to be really ideally healthy, uh, maximize your potential, then of course the nitric oxide boosters are a wonderful option, but you got to be careful to not do those in the wrong order. And if you, you know, just take tons of antioxidants with them because you don't want to be creating a peroxynitrate situation. Yeah. 
because my my understanding was people taking straight arginine. Okay, because so now you, you it's feeding unbound uh, nitric oxides, and now you don't have anything to bind it. So because I found my understanding was night with nitrates, rich fruits of like eating beets, because basically uh, when I take that supplement specifically, so it's just a lot of that nitrates alone. But a lot of there's a lot of supplement out there with ton of arginine which mm-hmm. that was my understanding that this is increasing uh the wrong thing that we don't want so yeah so certainly with arginine you create more of like the really problematic um nitric oxide but you can do that with just mm-hmm. if you just take exogenous nitric oxide then you even if it's just exogenous nit- like exogenous nitric oxide like if you're just taking nitric oxide um, then that can still turn into the peroxynitrates if there's okay. not enough antioxidants. And if you mm-hmm. have high iron, then you are at a much, much higher risk for having low levels of antioxidants and high oxidative stress. Yeah, so yeah, it's, um, that, so you just have to be careful to do it, okay. you know, kind of in the right order. Good. Oh, and one last thing I'm like, about that, this was so profound when you talked about NAC, NAC, as to why there's a difference with some people that you can take NAC and it can be um, a, an issue when you're, if your iron is, uh, your iron level is too high. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, NAC's interesting because there's some, a good, a good amount of pretty good research that shows that people that have high iron, like acutely high iron, they're in like an acute high iron situation. They, if they take NAC, then it can actually create more problems. And the thought as to why that is the case is because it increases iron absorption. Um, having said that, there's other studies that show that if you take NAC with iron chelators, which meaning like you're lowering iron while simultaneously, you're lowering iron faster, you know, than the NAC can absorb it, increase the absorption. Because um, NAC is a wonderful antioxidant and it helps boost glutathione. So if you're, there's some research where if you take the iron chelators with the NAC, then it can really be wonderful. So it's not that NAC isn't wonderful in that, you know, it helps boost glutathione. It's that in somebody that has an acutely high iron situation and they take NAC, it can be a problem for them in like that case. And you just, you know, you don't want to unintentionally cause a problem. So if there's other good options, then look at those options such as just straight up glutathione and then, you know, lots of other wonderful antioxidants out there. Um, and not to say NAC couldn't be used in some form or fashion with people with high yeah, iron. No, no, it's just you sure. really have to be careful and know what you're doing. And I think probably the best time for people to use NAC is when their iron levels are either low or normal. And just to get the extra, there's just so many wonderful antioxidants out there that Absolutely, you don't like yeah. have to just use NAC. That's just a really popular one. Yeah. And I'll follow pork. Yeah. We, yeah. And we have to you know, learn as much as we can about these different things because they're, they're such wonderful, useful tools, all these different, you know, nutritional supplements. Um, and they can really be transformational, but there's, you know, there's pros and cons and you have to know what's the best for the specific situation. And I try to kind of break that down in the iron curse, but, um, you know, it's just, 
I try to, whenever I'm talking about a nutritional supplement to like say, here's what it does. This is the good part. This can also be a bad part. Here's the other problems that it can create, you know, so that you really know what you're dealing with because what's good for you might be bad for me and vice versa. Yeah. And because the whole thing with like curcumin as well, which I've been starting to take, but for some people it can deplete, um, it can also deplete your iron as well too if you take curcumin. Yeah, I can't well, take right? curcumin. <laughs> I would love to take curcumin. I, I would love to take curcumin. That stuff's great. If I take it, I have iron deficient anemia. I can't take it. Um, then, but people that have high iron, it, you know, it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll, we'll have to, <laughs> to to tune in again. Yes, on I would episode. love to. Thank you and so I'm much. And I'm like, all these, like, I love, I want to dive maybe even, like, we dove so much into iron, uh, but maybe into, like, diving into deeper into genetics. Then we should just yeah. do, like, a whole genetics. And, yeah. Because there's just so many things out there, like, like curcumin. Okay, so that could be also an inhibitor of, like, the CYP3A4 enzyme in the liver, which you can have issues with estrogen and then drug metabolization as well, too. So I'm like, okay, well, yeah. are we doing harm? Like resveratrol, quercetin, like all the all the rutin, apigen, and all these bioflavonoids with COMT, MAO, or methylene blue right now, too, which I was thinking of trying it out, but I'm like, okay, well, we'll see. It's so interesting. There's so much to learn about. There's so much to learn, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and I have the, I just did the methylation and MTHFR seminar. I don't know if you saw it, but. Oh, uh, okay, okay, no. So that's another one. And then I have the celiac one coming up, which is about celiac and Crohn's and um, just, like, autoimmune, inflammatory immune stuff. So those are fun genetic things. I don't find, you know, those are important genetic topics. Also, we could talk about at some point in time, but um, yeah. So thank you for having me and for, you know, really getting, getting it. Unfortunately, it took you having the disease to really get it, but um, I think that you can really help so many people. Right. Yeah, exactly. You've turned, you know, you've turned it the silver lining, but I think you can help so many people just by getting the message out there and, you know, it, it's one thing when you hear it from somebody that suffered from it. Absolutely. So, and, and again, before you leave, uh, so where can people get a hold of you or get your book or uh, yeah. more see more of your work or The Iron Curse if people want to participate and take a yeah. deep dive into this? Because it was so good. Like, a lot of content. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Iron Curse is, oh, you know, over six hours of just straight up content about iron so if you're interested so the best website right now is dr christy sutton and and then you can also follow me on social media you know facebook christy sutton instagram and tiktok are um dr christy sutton and then i have a little bit of content on youtube but so um yes thank you so much no problem i'll put all of that in the show notes as well too and then a link to your iron curse as well, of course, and all of that. So people want to dive in and, and take a look at it. So absolutely. And then we'll definitely do a, another episode. So. Yeah. Well, the iron curse will be coming awesome. out soon, the book. So um, yes. right now it's just the webinar. I'm so, so excited. So when it comes out, then we'll definitely have to talk again and um, dive in. Because there's a lot of stuff that's in the book that's not in the webinar and vice versa. Mm. There's things that are in the webinar that are not in the book because it's just different platforms and different medias lend themselves differently awesome perfect excellent we're so good to having you and then until next time so we'll uh we'll definitely dive back into another episode so okay 
Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Regen Biome Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly or seeking private one-on-one health coaching, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, regenbiome.com or on Instagram at Jean Felix Turcott underscore JFT. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.